If you would, open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, and verse 28. is where we'll be reading this morning. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. These are some well-known verses, and well-known, I think, for good reason. Uh, We're going to read from verse 28 through the end of the chapter. So if you would follow along with me as we read in Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. If you would pray with me. Lord, we are grateful for your word. It is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, and cuts to the division of soul and spirit, and is a a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. Lord, we pray that you would expose our hearts today, and we pray that you would root us in the promises of the gospel. Root us in the truth of your word so that, Lord, we would, we would have great hope and great encouragement to persevere in our walk. We pray for your help now as we consider these verses. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> what I'd like us to consider from this passage this morning is that our salvation as believers is complete and securely fixed in Christ. It is firmly and securely fixed in Christ, no matter what our circumstances are. And that is based on the character of God himself. And that can be an encouragement for us. I want us to ultimately see from these verses this morning that God is for us. He is for us as his children. Um, This is a simple thing in many ways. I, I chose this passage this morning because this is one of my favorite passages, and um, I originally didn't think about it in light of the graduates, but this, this passage has special 
importance in my life. I know I can think about uh, a time when I was in college when I was especially struggling with assurance of salvation and um, doubting God's ability to keep me and um, struggling with sin. And this passage, God really used this to drive home. I'm sure that many of you have similar stories. There are certain passages that just stick out in your mind that um, are key in a certain phase of life that you're going through. And uh, I think this, this passage is, is an incredible encouragement to us as we go through uh, battle with sin as well as times of great trial. So that's my hope that we wouldn't be encouraged by this as we look at it this morning. <clears throat> now, in order for us to get an understanding of what Paul's trying to do here in chapter 8, I want us to just take a step back briefly and think about the entire letter to the Romans. Um, we're not going to teach on the entire letter to the Romans this morning. That would take forever. But I think it is important to understand where this passage is in light of the whole book of Romans. Um, the book of Romans is about the gospel. Start, Paul starts that out at the very beginning of the letter and says it's about the gospel of God. Um, and so from beginning to end, this is a complete and comprehensive unraveling of all that was promised for centuries and that was finally fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul lays out in the first three chapters, he starts, he starts with the reality of man's condition. And I can't help but think about what we've just been going through in Sunday school uh, about the key tenets of the gospel and how to share the gospel with someone. You have to start with the bad news. Nobody likes bad news, but the first three chapters of Romans are critical to understand that we really have a need, a desperate need, to be right with God. And so he lays all of humanity low in those first few chapters of Romans. It starts off with those Gentile pagans like us who reject God. We live for ourselves. We set up gods in our own image. We've rejected him. But then he moves on to the Jews, and he says, well, Jews, you're no better. You have the law. You have all the sacrifices. You have all these things, and yet you don't really obey him. You don't really live for him. And so that culminates with that, that famous verse in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. <clears throat> that is our condition. He moves on then in chapters 3 through 5, really the core pivotal section of Romans to show that a person, a sinner, can't be right with God. He can't be justified by works, but only by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the whole purpose of those, those several chapters there. A person can only be made right by faith in Jesus Christ, not by works. And that was really the case all the way back to Abraham and David. He then moves on to chapter 6 and 7 to show how that justification that people have in Christ, how that begins to, to show itself. How being united to Christ then shows itself in the way that we live. Um, it shows that we, we now are doing battle with sin. We hate sin. There's still remaining sin in us, but we want to live for God and His glory and not for our own, our own flesh. <clears throat> We're freed from the law now to be able to serve Christ in the Spirit and not in the letter of the law. And then at the end of chapter 7... Paul personally even relates the struggle that, he's ha that he has in his own person um, with that reality of remaining sin in the heart and life of a justified believer. He describes how we do what we really don't want to do and how we don't do what we know we should do. Um, 
there's this war going on in our members between our renewed spirit and our remaining sin. And of course, this is a, a, a struggle that, that comes down to us from the ages. I mean, this is a reality that all of us who are children of God deal with. Um, we want to live for God and His glory, and yet we find remaining sin in us, a desire to live for self and, and <clears throat> self-centeredness. <clears throat> Though the believer is justified, yet he has this ongoing fight with sin and temptation. And on top of that, we have circumstances that come against us, right? We have, we have difficulties, trials of life, persecutions even that could happen that make that struggle all the more difficult. And so Paul comes to the end of chapter 7 with that famous line where he cries out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he immediately follows, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is Paul's hope for the Christian as he writes this as well, that we would be living victoriously through Christ as we do battle with sin, as we do battle with our Um, our trials and temptations. So now he comes to chapter 8, where we find this passage that we just read, where we'll be spending the time today. And here, as he moves into chapter 8, now he's really trying to encourage the believers. He's trying to give them lots of promises about God that are going to support them and buttress them through the trials of the Christian life. And... If you don't take anything away from this morning as we go through these verses, I, I just I hope that you notice the truths about God that give us hope and encouragement as we deal with sin and as we deal with trials. It's really God's character that is our foundation as we deal with those challenges and difficulties. I know even for the, uh, the kids who are here today, the kids who have your, your little kid outline that, uh, that Debbie passes out to you, there's one of the boxes there that says, what did I learn today about God? So I want you to be listening today as we, as we talk about these things. I'll try to mention some things like God is gracious, God is merciful. So try to think about those things as you hear them, things about God that help encourage us. So we'll talk about that in a little while. <clears throat> Paul's interested here in chapter 8 of giving us encouragement to persevere when we're feeling like, we don't want to persevere. Um, let me ask you this morning, do you, do you ever grieve over your own inability to put sin to death in your life? Do you ever feel like, man, why am I still struggling with this? Why did I ask this person's forgiveness for this, and then now here it is, a few days later, I'm doing the same thing again? Um, I think we all, as believers, struggle to some extent with that. And um, we may struggle even to the degree where we're tempted to doubt. Am I really a child of God? Why would I keep struggling like this? And so I think Paul has promises here in this passage that will, that will help encourage us, who are really his children, um, to persevere and to fight that sin. Or it could be that you're totally overwhelmed by circumstance. It could be a trial, an outward trial, could be an inward trial of grief, of difficulty, and maybe you feel like you can't even sense God in the situation that you're in. Maybe you feel like if God really did love you, then you wouldn't be going through what you're going through right now. Well, 
if that's the case, then there's truths in this passage also that will comfort you. There's, there's truths that should give you hope to know that God is for you. He's not against you. So, so that's going to be our theme as we look at these verses now. The reality that God is for us. And we're going to talk firstly about how he's for us and how he could actually be for us. But then we're going to look at at least two big ways in which he's for us. Number one, by giving Christ and completing our salvation entirely and fully by his power. That's the first way in which he's for us. And the second way in which he's for us is by working out every single circumstance in our life for our good, um, for the benefit of us. So, So we'll see very clearly here that God is for us. So let's look first at verse 28. This is a verse that I bet everyone can quote in here, maybe not verbatim, but probably at least some parts of it. Uh, verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. Um, how does that happen? Well, Paul, first of all, he isn't talking here about some kind of Christian karma, like, well, if you're just doing good things all the time, it's bound, good stuff's bound to come back to you. Like, good stuff's going to happen. Just, just trust it. It's going to come. It's not like some ambiguous karma that's just going to come your way and eventually life circumstances are going to favor you. That's not what he's saying here. Um, and in that same light, it's not like this um, is some description of just, just general optimism. Just think positive. Just have positive thoughts about your situation um, hang in there. Everything's going to work out. Um, kind of like Paul's like some Christian cheerleader here, like saying like, hey, don't give up. Keep it up. You got it. You'll get there. Let's go, guys. Keep your spirits up. Um, maybe even like, oh, there's a lot of other people who have worse off situations than you. That, that's not what he's saying here. Not at all. Really, there's, there's substance behind these words of all things working together for good. This is actually a promise of God himself, that all things are going to work together for good to those who love God. This is a a promise that's unique to God's children. Notice who it's for. It's for those who love God. And then he gives us another description of that kind of person. It's those who are the called according to his purpose. So that's who he's talking about here. This isn't saying that all things are working out for good for every single person. It's for those who love God. So this is a promise that, is, that we should claim as Christians, that everything truly is working for good. How can it be working for good? How on earth can every single thing in our life be working for good? That seems very superficial to say that. Um, I think you've probably even felt that. Like when you've talked to someone who's dealing with a difficulty, you even feel like it's a little quip to say, well, all things are working together for good. You know, like... That's, that's, that's a tough message to deliver even. So how, how do you know that everything's working together for good? Well, it's because God himself is the one who is working it for good. Um, all things are working for our good because God is the one working them out. He is the one taking action here from beginning to end. Notice um, what he says here in verses 29 and 30. And here's the important word at the beginning of verse 29. For, okay, all things are working for good. How? Well, for, here's how, here's why. For whom he foreknew, he 
also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. There's a lot of he's in there. That's God's activity. From beginning to end of our salvation, God is the actor. He is the one doing this. If I felt like a good portion of my salvation or even some small part of my salvation was due to me, then I would have reason to fear here, this part right here is not going to work for good because I'm going to screw it up right here. But because everything from the very beginning to the very end of our salvation is God working it out, we can have confidence that He is going to make sure that every detail is worked out for our good and, and for His glory as well. So He's the author and He's the finisher of our salvation. And from beginning to end here, every single thing He's working out for our good. So, for the kids who have your sermon outline, and this is for the adults too if you want. So, what do we see about God here? What is important about God? What character quality do we see here? God working all things out for good. Well, you can say it out loud if you want. But uh, here we see that God is sovereign. He's in control. So God is sovereign. That's a big word that just means God's the one in charge. And he's going to make sure everything works out. So even kids, when you have difficult things, when, you, when you're maybe in trouble for something and you're upset about that, or maybe you have a fight with a friend or a brother or sister, and you're tempted to wonder, man, this is really bad. This isn't working out. Well, God's going to work that out for good. If you're loving him, if you're trusting him, he's going to work that out. So, because he's in control, because he's sovereign. Now, as we look at several ways in which God is for us here, working out everything for our good, I really want us to see that when we struggle with sin or we face trials, that our hope and confidence is ultimately in God. It's in his character Uh, Matthew talked about that this morning, how we trust people of whom we know their character. If we don't know someone's character, we're not going to trust them. We may say, okay, trust but verify, (laughs) you know, like as we get to know someone. But the more we build that relationship, the more we trust. That's just inherently how God has made us. And so the more we get to know God and his character and what he's like, the more we'll be able to trust him through difficulties. And so that's our hope. Our hope of persevering is in God. Uh, that our hope that somehow we're going to make it to the end, that we're not going to shipwreck our faith, um, it's all wrapped up in who God is. And so as we look at these next verses, I want us to really notice uh, the character qualities that he, that he lays out of God. Now, we've already looked um, at how the actions related to our salvations in verses 29 and 30 are really God's working. Um, but let me just point out a few other things about verses 29 and 30 now. I want you to notice that this is really an unbroken chain of salvation for all of those who are true believers. It's an unbroken chain of salvation from beginning to end. The links are connected here. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, You can see the first link in the chain here. For whom he foreknew. It's those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified, and so on. So this is an unbroken chain of salvation 
that he lays out here. All that he foreknew, he predestined. All that he predestined, he called. All that he called, he justified. All that he justified, he glorified. So let's just briefly look at each of these words. Um, We don't have time to go in great detail in these, but I think it's important to understand what he's saying here with these promises. So the first thing he says is, whom he foreknew. Now, I think you don't have to look at this verse long to realize that foreknow, it means more than just that God knew ahead of time something. Um, God knows everything ahead of time. But this means more that this is something unique. This is something that involves a depth of knowledge, a depth of intimacy that God has, whom he foreknew. It's not just details he knows about our life. That's true. But that's not what he's saying here. He's saying he foreknew us as people. Like he knew us. He, he wove us together in our mother's womb. But he knew exactly what we would be like. And he had an intimate love for us before we were ever created. I mean, that is amazing if you think about it. Before we were even created, God set his love on us. Um, we don't deserve it. It's, it's, a, it's an unmerited love, but he set his affection on us. And so this word, he foreknew, it's really he foreloved, he foreset his affection on. He knew us in an intimate way. Um, he looked upon us in his sovereign wisdom from eternity past with a special purpose. And so that's whom he foreknew. Those whom he foreknew, it says, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So he predestined. He determined beforehand. He ordained that I would be conformed to the image of Jesus. He planned that. He decided in eternity past that my life, wretched as it was, rebellious as it was, was going to be used for his honor and glory, and he determined that I would be conformed to the image of his son. It's amazing. It's an amazing promise here. And Paul here, he isn't, he isn't really seeking to defend this. Here he's just kind of caught up in this praise of logic, and he's amazed by it. In chapter 9, he's going he's gonna to talk more about God predestining and electing. But here he's just saying, this is, this is a crucial part of the, of the chain of, of unbroken promise that he's given to his children. Um, and it should be a point of comfort to us that he predestined us to be conformed to Jesus before we were even born. Um, and not just that he just kind of generally predestined us here. Here he's, he's predestining us to be conformed to Jesus, to be molded and shaped into the image of Jesus Christ, um, to be made more like the Son of God. I mean, that's what we live for, right? To be made like Jesus. We want to be like him, to have the mind of Christ, and to live like Christ. Well, that's what he's predestined us to be, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So, whom he, whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And then whom he predestined, he also called, it says here. So, in, in the Bible, the, the term called can mean one of two things. Sometimes it's referring to the outward call of the gospel, like the preaching of the gospel that goes out to all who hear. Um, So we often call that maybe like the external call, the outward call. Um, And that's not what he's talking about here. And the reason I say that is because it says, those whom he called, he also justified. So this is a a, a special call. This is really the inward call of God in our heart. 
that accompanies the outward call of the preached Word of God that goes out, and then the Holy Spirit works in our heart and calls us while that Word is being preached. Um, Everyone who's called in this way is justified. These are the called ones that we already read about in verse 28. Remember, it's those who love God. Who are they? Well, they're the called according to His purpose. That's another way of talking about Christians. We're the called ones, the ones who have been changed from within and been called out and now follow the Lord. So this is what Jesus meant in John chapter 10 when he's talking about his sheep and he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So he's saying they hear my voice, they hear me calling them internally and they follow me. So it's the call of God within the heart. This is the, we just came through Acts 16 in uh, Mac preaching through the book of Acts. We saw that this is the same kind of thing that happened to Lydia. Remember, she was down by the river. Paul came and began to preach the word of God, and it says that the Lord opened her heart to heed the things that were spoken by Paul. I mean, just think about that. Just a couple casual words thrown in there. Oh, yeah, the Lord opened her heart. This is a dynamic. He totally transformed her heart and opened her eyes to see the truth. And changed her forever. That's God calling um, and changing people internally. So, whom he predestined, he also called. And then whom he called, says he also justified. Uh, Justified. We read about what justification is this morning from our confession of faith. To be justified means to be declared righteous. To be made righteous completely righteous because of what Jesus has done for us. So this is sin being removed, righteousness of Jesus being put to our account, and we're forgiven of our sin. We're righteous in God's sight. That's amazing. This is the whole theme of the book of Romans, that we are justified by God's grace through Christ. So everyone who is called is justified. And then all those who are justified, these he also glorified. So glorified. This is talking about that final state of salvation, which for everyone sitting here is yet future. Um, It's when we'll be free of sin. We'll have our new bodies. We'll be with the Lord forever in the presence of Christ. And what always strikes me about this, notice how he says this. He says, whom he justified, these he also glorified. Glorified, like past tense. Glorified. So in this unbroken chain of salvation, it's so certain, it's so unbreakable that he can talk about us as Christians now sitting here on earth as if our glorification is already secure. I mean, it's, it's, it's golden. It's, it's preserved in heaven for you, and no one can change that. We haven't actually been glorified yet, but it's secure. There's no way that it won't happen for all who are his, his children. So This is an incredible promise. I mean, just going through this, hopefully you have hope and encouragement. Again, just seeing these these realities of salvation that don't depend on us. They depend on the power of God. And so that gives us hope because we we can't ultimately screw this up. God is for us. So do you see how this can be a help to us this morning? Say if we feel defeated in our battle with sin. We feel like, I'm stuck in this state. I've been justified. I guess I'm being conformed to the image of Jesus. 
I guess. It doesn't really feel like it. It doesn't look like it right now. But no, you are. You really are. I can tell you, if you're a Christian, that God is conforming you to the image of Jesus right now. He's doing it. I can tell you that because he says that he is. I can tell you that it's true, that it's a promise. So even when you feel defeated, you feel like sin is getting the best of you, you can bank on the fact that God is on your side and he is going to work out this salvation in you and he's going to help you to overcome this sin. Um, He's promised here that he's doing a work in us that is purposeful and in his wisdom, every aspect of it uh, has been on his mind from all of eternity. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So that's what we see here in these verses. All right, so, but now Paul's about to take this a step further uh, as we look into verses 31 and 32. I want you to see his argument here. Paul's making a logical argument. Don't, Don't let anyone ever tell you that logic is boring and lifeless because logic can be passionate and full of life. And we see that with the apostle here. He loves arguments, not arguments like fighting with people, like arguments showing this is true, so this has to be true too. Believe it. Cling to it. Don't, don't forsake it. And that's what, he's, that's what he's doing here. Notice how he's reasoning here in verse, um, verse 31 through 33. I'll read it again. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Let me stop there. So you see how he's reasoning here? He's saying, if God didn't spare up his own son, but gave him to die, and he did that for people like me, who were his enemies, and were just living for myself, and ignored him so much of my life, if he did that then doesn't every other single thing in the whole universe seem like a pretty small thing for him to give? He gave up his own son for me. Everything else is just like icing on the cake. And so that's his argument here. He's saying, do you think that he's going to give you his son, the second member of the Godhead actually given to you and crediting his righteousness to you as if it was yours, and then not give you everything else that you need to live a godly life and to live for his glory and to live for your good. So he's going to give you everything else that you need to continue to walk out your faith to the end of your days. Of course he's going to do that. So again, this is God's character. And again, for the kids, think about what character qualities of God we see here that help us with this. First of all, it says in verse 31, God is for us. Um, He's on our side. And here... I think it's really pointing to the fact that God is our Father. I mean, He's for us. I mean, how many of you, many many here have been raised in a Christian home. You have a, a Father that loves the Lord. Think about being in great need and running to your Father and being rejected by Him. It's it's foreign to your understanding, and yet we can be tempted to think that way about God. But He's saying here, no, I'm your Father. I'm for you. I'm going to make sure that everything works out for you. So, so he's our father. Um, we see that he's gracious. Verse 32, he freely gives us all things. That's what grace is. We didn't earn it. He just gives it to us. There in verse 32. So this is what, this is what God has done for us. 
But you might say, well, you don't, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how much I've fallen. You don't know how far I've gone, how much I failed the Lord in certain areas over and over again. And maybe I don't, but God does. God knows every single failure that you have committed, and yet he is for you as, as his child. So this is the comfort that he gives us here. He continues to argue. Look at verses 33 and 34. Um, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So now Paul continues this argument, and he, he kind of takes us to a courtroom. And the picture here is you're a criminal, and you're sitting there, and you're guilty, and you know you're guilty. The judge is God the Father, God himself. Sorry, the judge is Jesus Christ. The prosecuting attorney is God the Father. He's bringing the charge. So <clears throat> we're in this heavenly courtroom. We're on trial. We've committed this, all these acts of sin against God. He says, who's going to bring the charge against God's elect? Who's going to do that? Well, it's God. God's the one who's going to bring the charge. And you think about that for a minute, and you think, well, that's, that's kind of scary. God, who knows every, not only sin that I've committed outwardly, but he knows every thought in my heart that nobody else has ever heard. He knows that intimately, and he's the prosecuting attorney who's going to bring a charge against me. That's terrifying. That's terrifying if it wasn't for the case that he is for us. Look at what he says. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Well, it, it's God who justifies. The same God who would bring the charge is the one who's already wiped your sins away clean and made you perfectly righteous. So if he's not going to bring a charge, then who is? And he says, well, it's Christ who died. Who's he who condemns? Well, that's Jesus. He's the judge of the earth. He's the righteous judge. He's going to judge all the earth. Again, terrifying to think about if we're on the outside of the kingdom. It's his job to condemn those who are rightly to be condemned. So we're in trouble. But no, wait. He's the judge, but he's also the one who has died. And he's laid down his life for us. And he's also risen. And he's at the right hand of God. And he's actually making intercession for us. So the one who would judge us is actually praying for us. I mean, this is amazing um, he, he's arguing here from the lesser to the greater. If, if, if God and Jesus himself are on your side, then you have nothing to fear. Uh, they are your advocates. They are making intercession for you. This is a complete work that God has done for us in Christ, securing our salvation and making sure that no one can touch it. Um, he is for us. So I think this is the first way that we see clearly in this passage that God is for us. Um, again, for the, the kids, think about what we learned from that, that idea of Jesus being the judge and God being the attorney. We see that God is righteous. 
And if you think that God is righteous, that's, that can be scary at first because He's going to punish us for our sin. But He's righteous and He's already punished His Son Jesus for our sin if we're trusting in Him. So He's so righteous, He's not going to punish us for something that He's already punished His Son for. He's not going to, that sin's been dealt with. So he's not, going to, he's not going to cause us to suffer for that sin. So His righteousness actually should encourage us. God is righteous. God is merciful here. These are the amazing things we see about God here. So, we see here that God is for us in securing our salvation from beginning to end. The last thing I want us to see here in these last few verses is that our circumstances also are working for us. And our circumstances cannot rob us of Christ's love either. Um, so this all sounds well and good, but then you think about, well, what about the difficult circumstances that Christians, believers, have to face in this life? A Christian may persevere, but how can a Christian really enjoy the, the, the love of Christ and the benefits of God through these deep trials? Well, Paul's now going to list a series of experiences that could potentially separate us from the love of God. So he, he gives us this list here. Um, in verse uh, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. So he lists all these things here. First of all, he says tribulation. So tribulation is describing like an outward affliction, some kind of difficulty. It's just a general word for any kind of outward trouble that you have with other people, with other situations. Shall tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? Shall distress, distress is really talking about an inward turmoil, something that others may not see. Um, it could be an internal grief, an anxiety that you have. Um, it could be family conflict. It could be financial difficulty, the stress you feel from that. It could be a wayward child. All these things that weigh heavily on our hearts. And he says, could this separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, deep, deep internal distress, or persecution. We talked about some of the persecution taking place in Malaysia, all over the world. And in many instances, even in our country, lower levels of persecution that, that take place against believers, suffering at the hands of others. Shall famine, lack of food, nakedness, lacking of clothing, basic needs, or peril, that's a general term for trouble. Uh, Paul uses that many times in 2 Corinthians when he's talking about all the perils that he faced on his missionary journeys. All kinds of different troubles. Or sword. Uh, lastly here, this term sword is probably talking about um, the reality of being martyred for the faith, actually being executed for the faith, the death penalty. So all these things, I mean, I doubt we could compile a more comprehensive list of trials and sufferings than this. But he's saying here that none of these things can separate us from the love of Christ. None of them. And let me point out that Paul here wasn't speaking as kind of an armchair theologian, like sitting back and, let me tell these peons what kind of things they should and shouldn't do. We've been going through the book of Acts. Paul suffered all of these things, 
At this point, he'd suffered six of them tremendously, and he was years away from suffering the sword uh, in his own death for the faith of the gospel. So Paul had suffered through all of these things. So he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, yes, but he's, he's writing out of his own experience. He knows these things that could potentially threaten you and make you think that you could be separated from the love of Christ. But he says, none of these things can truly separate us from the love of Christ. He's using this lofty language here in verse 37 now to describe how the Christian actually responds to all of this this suffering and trial and difficulty. And I've struggled with this verse before. It's it's humbling because I feel like I don't feel like that. Um, In verse 37, he says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, if I asked any of you, as you think back on a recent trial that you've experienced, or maybe a trial that you're going through right now, I doubt that your natural response would be to say, yeah, I was pretty much a conqueror through that one. I mean, that, that's not generally the way we would think about it. We think, this is hard. This is difficult. Why? It's still, it's still going on. Like, I mean, but the picture he gives here is of us as believers being more than conquerors through him who loved us. Well, how are we more than conquerors through all of those things? Well, I think part of the answer can be seen by comparing this verse back to the verse we started with, verse 28. Remember what we saw there. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Now, verse 37, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I think these two verses mirror each other and help, help explain one another. <clears throat> all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's through God's love that we then love God. So this is talking about how a believer actually comes to love the Lord through these difficult things. And then I think that all things here in verse 37, yeah, all these things, well, what kind of things? Well, all these things that Paul's just listed, these trials and suffering, that points back also to the, the phrase, all things working for good in verse 28. Everything works for good. The trials, the difficulties, suffering, pain, grief, anxiety, all those things, God is working them for our good. Um, that's not trite. That's... If every single anxiety we have in our heart is pointless, how miserable would that be? But the fact that every single thing that happens to us has a purpose for our good, I mean, that is super encouraging when we don't understand them. We don't know why it's happening. So Paul is saying here, not only are these trials and sufferings that God's bringing about meant to not hurt us, but They're being used by God to bring about good in us and for us. And that's the reason that he says that we are more than conquerors. Um, William Hendrickson was really helpful in understanding this. He's one of my favorite commentators. I encourage you to read him. Um, What does a conqueror do? Well, a conqueror goes out and defeats the enemy. Goes out, subdues his enemy, brings him to his knees, defeats him. So if you are more than a conqueror, What does that mean? Well, 
I think he had some really good insight here. I think he was right in saying that one who is more than a conqueror not only defeats the enemy, but he causes the enemy to become a helper. Not only defeating the enemy, but bringing the enemy into your camp and causing him to serve you. I mean, that, that's being more than a conqueror. And it's that reality that we are more than conquerors in Christ because we're taking all those tribulations and distresses and persecutions and any of those things and we're using them as an opportunity to grow to be more like Christ and to glorify God. And so he says, and I have to read this quote, Paul has been speaking about affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. For the moment, it almost seemed as if he was unable to think of anything but suffering and hardship. Nevertheless, his real intention was the very opposite. He wanted to emphasize that in the midst of all these unpleasant experiences, in fact, even by means of them and with their help, we are more than conquerors. So God is using our circumstances even to cause us to see more of the love of Christ, to see more of his faithfulness. Um, And here we see that God is wise. He is powerful. The world may say, if there was really a loving God, we wouldn't see suffering. You wouldn't be suffering the way you are. He wouldn't let you suffer like that if you were really his child. But in reality, it's in the times of trial and suffering when our earthly comforts can be taken away that we're able to see more of God, more of his goodness, more that he is our treasure, that he is our delight, that there's joy in knowing him. And we're able to really clearly see then that God is for us. I'll close with just looking back to verse 18. We didn't read this earlier, chapter 8. Paul started this section by saying, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That is what God is doing. God is for us. He is working out a complete salvation from beginning to end. And he's even taken all our circumstances and making them work to our good to help us to overcome sin and to help us to be faithful through the midst of difficult trials. Let's go ahead and pray together. Lord, our God, we thank you that, Lord, you are sovereign. You are on the throne, Lord. We trust you. We don't know your ways. We don't understand your doings many times in our life. And we would have those things go different many times. But, Lord, we know that you know best. And we thank you that even the difficult things are being worked together for our good. Um, That You're shaping us into the image of Christ Jesus. We pray that you would do that today, that your word would encourage us to cling more tightly to our Savior. Bless us, we pray.